Hello, I'm Chris Neeland, host of a new podcast, Cult Brand Secrets, brought to you by The Gathering and Evergreen Podcasts. The Gathering is a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders looking to reap the benefits of cult-like adoration. Each year, The Gathering brings together disruptors from around the globe to learn from and to celebrate the leaders behind iconic brands like Marvel, Skittles, Beats by Dre, Yeti, and the Dallas Cowboys. For the first time ever, this podcast will give you access to some of the exclusive business leader learnings from the gathering's past events. I've been fascinated by cult branding principles for nearly 20 years. But for most of that time, I only really considered those principles within corporations. My team and I researched brands like Harley Davidson, Apple, Nike, Starbucks, and Lululemon to try to reverse engineer what those companies did to become so iconic and to dominate their categories. But thanks to the gathering, we've been able to add other types of entities into our data set such as things like cities or destinations, where we evaluated Las Vegas and Times Square and the Bahamas. We also started investigating nonprofits like Make-A-Wish or Red Cross or Greenpeace. But we grew increasingly interested in people as well. Once we started researching iconic humans like Michael Jordan, Oprah Winfrey, or Gordon Ramsay, we stumbled upon this fascinating space that we now call cult brand personalities. In fact, it was so intriguing to us that in 2019, we introduced a new category of recognition and we selected Tony Hawk as our inaugural honoree. It's impossible for me to think of a better first time recipient than Tony. His career and his brand perfectly represent what we want people to understand about cult brand personalities which is their mastery of a craft, their pursuit of passion over profit, their durability and ability to stay relevant for decades, and their ability to give back and to contribute to relevant causes. Those are all everything that Tony has done that have qualified him so perfectly for this recognition. So have a listen and let's come back at the end to discuss what we've learned. Hi everyone. My name is Adam Wilson. I get the uh, the honor of introducing my uh, partner in a company we, we co-founded called Decal. Um, I do want to do a quick warm up. See how this goes over. If you had a childhood hero, no, I'm sorry. If you were 10 years old once, raise your hand. If you had a childhood hero, keep your hand up. All right. If to this day you still find them relevant and they excite you and maybe they're kind of maybe they've achieved brand status keep your hand up as it's it's not it's difficult to do so as a 10 year old skateboarder in 1984 my heroes our heroes as skateboarders they were enigmas we didn't we didn't go on instagram to see what they ate that night like they were these mystical creatures from a faraway land called Southern California. And none of, you know, none of uh, the kids I grew up skateboarding with in Detroit, the Detroit area had ever set foot in Southern California. Hell, Southern California may have not have been real. 
But the only proof we had were magazines that seemed to come out every 30 years and then VHS tapes and the joke for some of you skateboarders here, we literally had to search for Animal Chin because there was only one copy of it in our neighborhood. And then, you know, the, the all of that, to us, Tony, we didn't know it at the time, but he was a niche brand. He was a niche brand. He had all the components of a, of a cult brand before the rest of the world took notice. And then the rest of the world took notice of him in particular. That's the interesting thing is, is it's one thing to build an enduring brand, a culturally relevant, relevant brand, all the things we want our brands to be or to be one. It's quite another to do it at scale consistently over time, adapting. And that is what Tony has done. Whether he wants to be a brand or not, he, he has become one. So if Tony is a brand, all of us marketers in the world are very lucky to have him here today. That'll be my, bra my, my humble brag for him. Because if he is a brand, it kind of takes one to know one, as the old adage goes. So I will stop talking and let's welcome Mr. Tony Hawk to the stage. Hi everybody, how are you? Uh, my name is Tony Hawk. I'm a professional skateboarder and I'm 50 years old. And welcome to my uh, recovery group for skateboard addicts. That is still my job title. Uh, I've been skating for a long time and I guess I have become a brand of sorts. I'm still not entirely comfortable with that label, but uh, I understand it. And I've come to accept it and, and hopefully to keep it going. So uh, a little bit about how I got here. Uh, I started skateboarding when I was nine years old. Uh, I lived in San Diego, California, and skating was just a thing that kids did at my age. It was sort of, I didn't realize at the time, but it was sort of on the way out of being cool or popular, much like the yo-yo or the hula hoop. And I started doing it because my older brother was a surfer. <clears throat> he started skating. He let me use his old board. I remember one day in the driveway, he was skating around the, the alley. And I said, can I ride your old board? And he said, yeah, sure. And so I got on it. I pushed off and I remember saying, how do I turn? How do I turn? How do I turn? I ran to the fence and I got splinters in my hands and he's like, just lean. I said, oh, and I picked it up, turned it around and went back on my way. And there was no epiphany, the clouds in part. I didn't really think much of it. It was just, it was just a thing that we did. Like my friends were doing it. And I was like, all right, I'm going to skateboard with my friends. Not long after that, I got invited to go to the local skate park with a friend of mine who was going with his mom and my parents filled out all the forms. And I went and when I walked into the skate park, I literally saw people flying out of pools. And that's when I had my epiphany. I was like, I wanna do that. Whatever that is, however you get there, I wanna do it. I was super scrawny. I used to play baseball and basketball. I was always like, I was always very frustrated that I couldn't accomplish the things that I knew I was capable of or that I couldn't do the things that I, the team relied on me for because of my size, not because of my abilities. And when I got skateboarding, it was much the same. All of the, the experienced skaters were much older. They, you know, they were five or six years older than me. They looked like grown ass men. And I started trying it and, and just was like, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm gonna do this for as long as I can. I'd say, two concussions and two knocked out teeth later, I learned how to fly a little bit out of the bowl. Not long after that, I quit playing um, other sports. 
I quit Little League the year that they appointed my dad president of Little League. That was an awkward conversation to have, but he was supportive, believe it or not. I, I really did, I got lucky because most of my friends' parents did not want them skating. Skating was a negative um, influence, the outcasts, the bad kids, the punkers, they all skated. And I fell in love with it because of those things, because it set me apart, because it made it that I didn't have to follow this path that all my friends seemed to be stuck on. It was like, play Little League, play basketball, then you go to school and you go to college and then you find what you want to do. And, and I don't want to dismiss any of that, but it just didn't seem like it was for me. And so when I chose skating, I didn't think I was choosing a future. The absolute best skaters in the world at the time, they got their equipment for free and they got their picture in a magazine, maybe. So I didn't really think I was choosing a career. I was really young too, but I started to make a name for myself because I was doing these really strange tricks with my skateboard where I was maneuvering it. And it was, they were all very, I hate to say technical because they seem really basic now in hindsight, but, but they were very technical in comparison to the way people were skating. Everyone was trying to emulate surfing at the time. So it was like, if you look like you were surfing, you're doing laybacks and you're doing airs, that was cool. If, if you were reaching down between your legs and spinning your board around, that was not cool. That's what I did. And it was very isolating because I found the sport I loved that was already an outcast activity. It was considered, you know, for more rebellious kids. And then I fell in love with it. And then my style was largely, largely chastised. So then I was like isolated in my little community. And it was very hard. It was hard to get any validation. It was hard to get any acceptance. I found a couple of friends that were my age that kind of had the same attitude, kind of had the same body type because we didn't have the bulk to propel us in the air. So I developed a style of, of getting airborne where I would, it, it's, it's so strange now to be in an audience like this and say that I ollied into my aerials and have it make sense to you <laughs> because it probably does in a little bit and, and in, a, in a way and, and through my life, that was not the case. But I learned how to ollie into my aerials and grab and that way I was already in the air by the time I was doing the maneuver. And there were pros literally interviewed in the magazines where they're like, what do you think of that kid, Tony Hawk? Because I started to make some, some noise in the amateur ranks. And they're like, he just cheats. He just ollies into his air and he can grab it however. And I was like, yeah, that's the point. I can grab it however I want. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna early grab a stale fish coming up the bowl because it's just not functional. Um, sorry, I went a little nerdy on that. Uh, <laughs> but, but that was it. And so I, I was, it was, they were starting to kind of make fun of me. But around that time, I started to, to grow a little bit and get more strength. And, and my aerials were getting much higher. And the, the, the technical moves I was doing were getting more spectacular or more airborne. And it was more like they couldn't deny that what I was doing is something different and, and something that made sense. I started to reach the top of the amateur ranks. And suddenly I found myself, my peers were starting to go pro and I was met with a decision at this one event, I'll never forget the Whittier Turkey shoot in uh, 1982, where I'm filling out the entry form to the competition and there's a box that says amateur and there's a box that says pro. And that was pro, that was it. There was no, <clears throat> there was no contracts, there was no celebration. There was no signature model. I just moved up in the ranks and I was competing against guys much older than me, guys who I'd looked up to half my life. And I was competing for a hundred dollars first prize. So uh, it was awesome. I loved it. 
And uh, I ended up getting fourth place at that event, which was huge. I actually beat one of the pros that at one point in my life literally spit on my skateboard because I tried to sidle up to him because I wanted him to acknowledge me. And he spit on my board and said, this is punk rock, kid. He's like, all right, I'll go back over here. <clears throat> um, and so my big claim to fame was that I beat him at that, my first event, my first pro event. It was awesome because we did it because we loved it. It was such a small community. No one was making a living at it. And suddenly we found ourselves with, with a little bit of, of recognition and, and for me, validation. And I started to, to do really well in the competitions. All of a sudden, skateboarding sort of came back into fashion. And in the mid 80s, I found myself, what I thought, riding high. I was making almost six figures a year. I was 17. I bought a house when I was a senior in high school. Try getting to school on time your senior year when you own your own house and your parents are never home. <clears throat> Where's the party? Well, Tony's parents are never home. Party's at Tony's house. And, uh, and suddenly I found myself making a really good living. Uh, I was about to graduate high school. All of my friends were trying to figure out where they're gonna go to college. And I had this realization that I, I have a career. I don't know how far I can take it. And, and for, you know, at my age, there was no end in sight. The sky was never falling. This is, this is going forever. So I just chased it. And, and for the first few years of that, after, after I graduated high school, it was going nonstop. We were on tour half the year, traveling the world, getting paid, doing big demos for what we thought was thousands of people, maybe hundreds, but it, felt, it just felt huge. And, and it, we felt invincible. Not long after that, in around, around 1991, suddenly, the sky did fall and the bottom dropped out of skateboarding. Most of the skate parks at the time couldn't afford insurance. So they all were closing left and right. Skateboarding was not cool anymore. And I was stuck with two mortgages, a child on the way, and not having any idea what I was doing. I was 24. And suddenly I was like, what, what do I do with my life? I thought this defined me, the skating. I love it. I have to do. So at the time, I did what seemed like the smartest decision was to take a second mortgage out of my house and start a skateboard company. And I did that because I thought that that was my transition from being a pro skater and more just being behind the scenes and having a brand of my own that I could control, that I chose the riders for, that I chose the direction for, I chose the, the, the aesthetics and it just, it was fun. It was experimental. It was, it was tricky financially, but that wasn't the point. Like we loved what we were doing. I would take my crew on tour. One of our first tours, we took the delivery van that we used for Birdhouse that was on its way out um, in terms of dying. And there were five of us at a time, sometimes six. No, there were six of us in the van and we're driving across the country. We would go to skate shops and we would just show up and, and hope that they would give us uh, $400 so that we could get a hotel room, get food, get gas and get to the next place. About half the time they gave us part of $400. And it was, it was a blast though, because we would go to these parking lots and they would just set up some junky wooden ramps. The local skaters would come and either skate with us or just watch. Uh, we went to a couple of, of the last remaining skate parks across the country. Uh, if you wanna know how you share one room with six dudes, you take the mattresses off the box springs and you put them to the side so that two people get a mattress, one person gets box springs, two mattress, one box spring. We were living the dream. And it's funny because when I look back on that, I, I don't think of it as a struggle. It was, it was, like I said, it was tricky financially, but 
But we just loved it so much. And we loved that we were still able to skate for a living. Even though it was a minor living, it was, we were doing what you love for a living. And that, that was it. Not long after that, it took about two or three years for us to actually turn a profit at Birdhouse. That was my skate company. We stayed the course. We, we, made, we cut costs at every turn. Those years, I was living on a steady diet of Taco Bell and Top Ramen. That's totally true. And uh, I still eat it once in a while. We, we, were, we were just making it work. Luckily, I had a team that believed in, in our vision, and they stuck with us, even though they weren't making that much money either. And suddenly, I got a call from ESPN, and they said, hey, we are going to do a, a competition that includes skateboarding. It's called the Extreme Games, and we want to get some of the top competitors. And we heard you're not competing, but we're going to have a vert ramp, and so you might want to join us because there were very few vert ramps at the time. That was more my style. And I realized that they were giving us this platform, this opportunity to show what we do on a bigger, to a bigger audience. It was a mishmash. It was, it was an experiment. They're throwing everything against, everything against the wall. They had bungee jumping, rock climbing, sky surfing, eco challenge. It was all over the place. But I felt like we had come so far as skaters and refined our styles and refined our tricks that we would kind of shine through the noise. That's what I believe. So I, I went for it. Um, I ended up sort of becoming one of the, the main names that emerged from that time because, because I was still competing and doing well. And then the X Games started to get bigger. They started to, to, to lose some of the noise, trim the fat, so to speak. No more bungee jumping. And suddenly it became the main event for kids to watch on TV, uh, you know, 1997, 98-ish. Around the same time, and I was going full speed ahead, skating as much as I could, touring, doing promotions, doing the most random promotions. I did a, I remember the one time I got offered big money and then I realized that I didn't really want to follow this path anymore was I got offered to do a promotion for Fruit Loops, me and Matt Hoffman, BMX rider, and at the time, Johnny Mosley, who had just won the Olympics. And they said, we want you guys to do this promotion for, I think it was, the idea was that Toucan Sam is now an extreme athlete. And we had a whole media training session for us to answer questions as if Toucan Sam was a real person and he's really into our sports now. And I remember thinking, I don't want to do this kind of thing for money. This is not my scene. We ended up, the three of us kind of having fun with it. We did a demo. Johnny Mosey was on the mic announcing us doing tricks. He didn't know any skate tricks. So he started naming them after cereals. Like there's a special K, there's Frosted Flakes, and and then they told him he had to stop because they weren't actually their brands. So <laughs> I do remember around that time is when I actually did get an agent, and I told him I don't want to do this kind of thing. I want to have control over the endorsements I do, and at least have more control over my likeness and my brand. I didn't say brand because I didn't know that's what it was back then, but right around that time. I got a call by a PC developer who said, hey, I want to work on a skateboard game. I know you're into video games and we could go pitch this to developers. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And he had a very rudimentary engine of this guy that was sort of carving through pools and doing little tricks and it had a long way to go. Um, but I agreed to go, to go pitch and, and he and I went and pitched all kinds of developers and console manufacturers and came up against a lot of pushback. One in particular rhymes with Pidway. They, they said, well, skateboarding is not even popular. Why would anyone play a video game after skateboarding? I was like, well, I think it lends itself to more 
open architecture and, and free skating and, and sort of whatever. I, was, I, went, I did my pitch. He wasn't hearing it. We left. Finally, that guy got, he, he got too discouraged. He said, look, I got to go make a living somehow. He said, but I think that the seed is planted that you're interested in a video game and that you might get a call. Two years go by and then maybe a year. And then Activision called me and they said, hey, we want to do, we are doing a video game and we would love to have your input on it and maybe add your name to it. And so I drove up to Santa Monica and met with a bunch of corporate suits all standing around this meeting table with a PlayStation in front of them. And uh, I walked in, they're like, well, this is, this is what we're working on. Do you want to see it? Yeah. So they turn it on and on the screen is Bruce Willis with a gun strapped to his back on a skateboard going through a wasteland and doing ollies and kickflips. And the reason for that is that they had just worked on a game called Apocalypse that starred Bruce Willis that was a complete failure. But the engine they developed was perfect for skating. And when I held this in my hands and I started playing it, I knew instinctively that this was it. This was the right feeling. This was the right control scheme. And with my input, with, with my resources, we could make something that skaters would be inspired to buy a PlayStation 4. That was the goal for me. <clears throat> for me, if, if I got a skater to go buy the game and buy a PlayStation and start playing it, it was like, that's it, my job's done, that's success. As we started to finish the development of it, you could feel that there was a buzz. I started burning copies for my friends, illegally. Uh, and we all had these modified PlayStations, so I started sending it to people that, I've, that I knew were into video games. And the buzz around the skate industry was, have you guys played the game? The game. That's just what it was known as before it was even released. And then Activision called me and they said, hey, uh, I think we're getting, you know, we're getting a lot of buzz from the game. We'd like to offer you a buyout on future royalties um, for half a million dollars. And I never heard anyone speak half a million dollars to me. It sounded like a gazillion billion dollars. But I was in a position, I just, I just sort of had got some financial security with, with other projects. I just bought a new house and I was like, no, I think I want to let it ride. I, I would love to see how this plays out. It was by far the best financial decision of my life. And the, the game took off. It went to all kinds of sequels. Uh, I'm, I'm sure many of you know about it. And it really changed my life <clears throat> in terms of recognition, in terms of opportunity, Parents were, were telling me that their kids were wondering why I was named after a video game. <laughs> and that's when I realized that I'd become a brand. That was the moment. That, when I first heard that, it was like, oh, this is, oh, this is totally different level of recognition and opportunity. And suddenly, I have become a brand and with great power. But, but really, it was, it was kind of intimidating, but at the same time, it opened up all kinds of new doors. It allowed me to, to exit competition because that was my main source of income at the time and start to follow projects that I really wanted to do. Things like uh, the Boom Boom Huck Jam, which was an arena tour of action sports. A lot of different endorsements and even soundtracks to our video games. And, and those kind of things wouldn't have happened without that, that level of recognition. I mean, that was definitely for me the tipping point. Um, and soon after that, I discovered social media through Twitter, and I started to realize how, how immediate and direct the connection was to fans in those platforms. And this is early on in Twitter days. I got a little boost from Lance Armstrong. I think that was, this is the plan that was seed. And then 
I just would watch the information flying around and, and I thought, this is crazy. And so one day I'm driving to my office uh, and I planted a skateboard in this, on this one street behind a fire hydrant. I just said, hey, I just put a skateboard on the street, go find it to see what would happen. By the time that I got to my office, uh, someone had tweeted a photo of them holding the board and all kinds of other people saying, oh, I just missed it, I just got there. And, and a friend of mine actually went, I don't know why, could have given him a board. A friend of mine went there because he was nearby and he said, I saw at least 20 cars pulling in trying to find this thing. And I just thought, wow, this is, this is something that I never imagined and I embraced it fully. We ended up doing Twitter hunts back then and then through the other obvious social media, uh, Facebook and Instagram, and suddenly I found that there was this whole new world of, of being connected. But, but also I felt a responsibility to at least stay interesting on those platforms because I saw plenty of my friends and even brands that were just boring. Like, uh, and, and I think that there's a lesson there in that obviously you don't have to be a person to be a brand, but your brand has to have personality on those platforms. When you're just tweeting or, or putting on Instagram, you know, your, your pitch lines and, and stuff like that, people just, it's gone. And, and now with the algorithms, it's just buried <laughs> forever. And so I think, you know, if I had any advice in that, in that category, it's just try to stay interesting, try to stay engaging, try to get people to, to be talking to you. Um, I find myself in the, in the most, in the strangest situations and, and I just take a photo. And that in itself usually works because it's such an absurd life that I get to live with skateboarding. You know, I, I never imagined that I would get to do this for a living. I never imagined that I would get to do this at my age. And it's the kind of thing that I would do gladly for free any day of the week. And now I get paid ridiculous amounts to do that. Now I get paid ridiculous amounts to speak about doing that. It's a dream come true, but at the same time, it's a dream that we've created along the way because there was no guidebook to this. This was all just us trying to figure it out and enjoying it. And, and I think that that shined through our true enjoyment of, of what we do. And, and it, I'm not just talking about for myself, I'm, I'm talking about like professional skateboarders in general, especially my generation. A lot of them are still skating, you know, the Bones Brigade, like Adam was talking about, all those guys, we still skate together. We're in our 50s, it's crazy. And I even have been able to learn some new tricks at my age, believe it or not. They're not high impact, they're not record breaking, but for me, it's progressive and, and I enjoy it. And, and I, I still wanna, if I'm gonna live this life and, and, and promote these brands and still have sponsors, I gotta walk the walk. But that's not why I do it. I do it truly for the love of the sport. And, and it's been a wild ride. And, and I just wanna thank you for having me and letting me tell my story because uh, here we are. It brought, brought us here in Banff. I got to go to the delirium dive today and risk my life. And this is crazy. <laughs> to be here now talking to you. So thank you very much. And uh, we'll answer some questions. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a true honor to have you here. And I said backstage, you deserve it too. And you truly are a brand. I know it's probably uncomfortable. I'm like zero famous and you're a thousand, and even walking through here, because we put this conference on, people stop me everywhere, and I can't imagine you. I saw you on Casey Neistat's show. Oh, yeah. And uh, people on the street grabbing you, and is that tough? Just, does it get tiring? Uh, no, it's awesome. 
It's super fun. I mean, usually people are very excited. It's not like you're some polarizing figure that they have great opinions about. It's like, oh man, Tony Hawk, yeah. Tony Hawk Underground. Yes. High five. Right. It's, it's kind of like that. Almost 20, I guess it's 20 years ago, uh, X Games 1999, uh, the 900. Honestly, it's 20 years ago, and I know it's probably close to impossible. What, when you look at that, what, what is that moment for you? It's, it's very, uh, uh, I, I wasn't trying to hide anything. It was, it was a state of shock. I had been trying that trick for nearly 10 years up to that point, off and on. And it was something, I had never pursued a trick so passionately for so long. But I think the, the more shock that so many people were excited to see it. Because, live, live, live too. Because when I learned, well, for instance, I, I'd learned 720s, which is a double spin, on a backyard ramp outside of Stockholm, Sweden in 1985 to three people watching. And I was like, oh, that, that's new. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. So to have this much attention on the next spin was really surreal to me and, and to have all my peers there cheering me on. Yeah, and but also I think, I think that speaks to the camaraderie of skateboarding in that we're all competing. We're in this best trick event. We're all, you know, it's supposed to be neck and neck. And they see that, that I'm getting closer to this finally and they started supporting me in that. And I'm sure that, that that was a big reason I did it. Well, I was either going to do it or get taken away in the hospital. It was amazing. How many times did you fall? Hundreds? At, no, but that on that, that night. That night it was, I think 12, 11 or 12 or something. It's crazy. It was, it's crazy. Another feeling that I want, I don't have the image, but when was the first time the Simpsons called you? Because <laughs> uh, you, know you know you've kind of made it when you're in a Simpsons episode. You've been in multiple episodes. No, just one. Just one. Okay. Yeah. Um, Tell me about that. That actually, I have to credit my, my publicist for chasing that, um, Sarah Hall Productions. I think she, she was doing that behind the scenes. And uh, at some point I got the call and they said, they want to feature you in an episode. They actually want the episode to be centered around you because you're going to be the surrogate father for Bart. It's amazing. And you voice, was it, did you go there? Like, did you record? Yeah. yeah. The, the coolest part about that whole process was going to the table read and seeing the voice come out of the most unlikely people around the table. Take me through that. Uh, um, it was amazing. Uh, and people still say, like, what's the highlight of, of, or what's the coolest thing you've done? That is by far the coolest thing I've done because it's such a gauge on pop culture. I know. It's crazy. We should have Bart Simpson here one year. Um, who inspired you back in those days? Two questions. Who inspired you? Who did you look up to? And then who inspires you now? My, I think my original inspiration for at least learning how to skate pools was Steve Caballero because he was about the same size as me and I would see him in magazines flying out of pools with elbow pads on his knees because he was so small. And that's what I wore. And I was like, I want to do that. That guy can fly. And then later on, uh, it was a skater named Eddie Alguera who in his time was absolutely the most innovative skater at, at a time when skateboarding was at its ultimate lull. And so he was in the, he was right place, wrong time. But I was watching him and, and my first pro trick that I learned, I'll never forget, I wanted to learn frontside rock and rolls. He created that trick. And because I could do that as an as a unsponsored amateur, they moved me up in the ranks because they said, if anyone can do frontside rocks, they have to be in the, the expert division. And I couldn't do much else. How long did it take you to learn it? It didn't take that long. It just wasn't that it, it, it was... It, it, no one else was really focused on that. Everyone else was still trying to fit into the style and the art thing. Did you, do you feel it? Because I heard you talk about sport, art. Like, you're, you're the goat when it comes to skateboarding. 
For, don't you, oh, do you agree? <laughs> it's true. But did you... But it's really, I think... Did I, you, it, did that's you, hard to say. Like, skateboarding is such an art form as far as I'm concerned. It's such a lifestyle. You can't have someone that is the best. I mean, it's like comparing... You definitely are. Artists. I appreciate the humility. But uh, my question is, do you feel like you your athletic ability or was it the art? Like, did you feel like you caught the tricks fast or you got them and picked them up fast because you saw it in your mind first? Like, or did you feel like you're gifted... Uh, I think I was always driven to challenge myself. And so I didn't care about my accolades. I didn't really care about my contest placings. I just wanted to keep learning new tricks. And that was the buzz for me yeah. and the thing I was chasing. So because I stayed progressive through those years, even though I was ranked number one, that's what kept me going. I, I, so back to Casey's, uh, and maybe talk about new media because you did Casey's uh, podcast. What was it, a couple weeks ago? Yeah, it was about a couple, it was a month or two ago. Yeah. So you've been around the game and they're, they're more, Casey Neistat, for those who don't know, is a YouTuber. They have more media power than CNN or that. What was it like being with him? And what was, this isn't an interview about him, but um, <laughs> he wanted to have you on the show and, and he's kind of influencing culture. What was it like being there and what did that mean? It was interesting. It, 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 it really showed the, the value of the new technology and, and those who have harnessed it and, and gotten the traction in it because that in itself, he was a very early adopter, especially of, of YouTube and, and doing vlogs or whatever you want to call it. I didn't really know much about him. We had a mutual friend. That's how we, we linked up. But I do remember watching him because he did a thing where he flew first class on, on United Emirates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, that is fucking cool. Yeah. That he videoed every part of it to show the world what it's like because it's such a, it, it, it's such a mystery and such an infamous, yeah. I don't know if anyone knows about it, but you know, for a while, Emirates was like the, the most luxurious yeah. airline. It's like 30 grand for a... For Something like that, yeah. Crazy, yeah. And so he, he took it upon himself to just film the whole experience. I, I, I was it. like, when I told him my my mobile game was coming out. He said, oh man, I want to build a mini ramp. That'll give me an excuse in New York. So uh, we set a date and I got there and he said, I, I can't build a mini ramp. It's, it's going to break through the whole floor. He's in Manhattan. He's like in the middle of Manhattan. It's pretty ambitious. I, I played the game. I'm not that good at it yet, but I, I downloaded it when I saw it on the show. See, it works. Let's, yeah, let's, let's talk about rivals. Um, You're the demographic. Larry Bird and uh, Magic Johnson in basketball. Um, who was yours? Because I know you had rivals. The guy that spit on your board, I'm not sure if he was one of them, but how did the how did rivals play into uh, shaping the Tony Hawk we know? I've been through a couple generations of, of skating, so take your pick. I think early on, uh, people pitted me against Christian Asoy because it was Christian represented the cool factor and the style of skating. And I represented the tricks and in a lot of ways, like the robotics of it. And it was like, you, you were in one camp or the other. That was it, especially through the eighties. I mean, it didn't get heated for us. We had grown up skating together, but it got weird at contests. Like I would skate and people would throw things at me. Well, from the outside, it looked like it. You guys didn't like each other, but behind the scenes. Oh no. I mean, I, are you kidding? I would, I would have killed to make my heirs look like him. Yeah. He was the king of style. But later on, uh, as the X Games came into play, then uh, they were pitting, it was like me, Bob Burnquist, Andy McDonald, Bucky Lassick. I don't know, I'm super old, so I got <laughs> uh, Let's go back even, so pools, let's talk about pools. In the early days, do you have any good stories about breaking into backyards back in the day and seeing <clears throat> empty pools? Not great stories, but, uh, well, but definitely hopping fences and, yeah? and feeling yeah. very much like we're gonna get in trouble. That was a thing. And sometimes getting in trouble. 
The worst trouble I ever gotten for skating was skating down the boardwalk in Oceanside. And a cop came and got me in a headlock and literally dragged me to the station by the pier to, give me, to write me a ticket. How much was the ticket? I don't know. I sent it to my sponsor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> yes, brands, you are useful. For purpose, there's been lots of talk with the brands that we're honoring here, amazing brands, and they're purpose-driven. I know you are. I've uh, seen some of the philanthropy you do. Can you talk about what you do and what you're involved in, why you do it? Yeah, well, uh, the charity closest to my heart, obviously, is my foundation. Uh, we help to support public skate parks in low-income areas. And the catalyst for that was in the early 2000s, as our video game was getting successful and the interest in skateboarding was growing, I saw a serious lack of facilities. There was, there was just no place to skate. So these kids that found something that they loved and that they were doing, especially in the more challenged areas, were largely told not to do it or, or told to get off the streets. It all came to a head for me when I got invited to a uh, skate park opening out in a, an affluent neighborhood outside of Chicago. They paid me to show up. And they, were, they had built this facility and they were really proud. You know, they were, they were hip, they were cool. They, they're supporting skateboarding. And we went in there. I went in the night before and they said, do you want to get a sneak preview of the park? Because no one's been able to skate it yet. So I go and they've got this fence around this new skate park and I go skate it and it is so terrible. <laughs> um, like stairs that go to a wall. Uh, every, every ledge was about this high. So you couldn't even slide it on your skateboard without your wheels dragging. Basically, they said, we're going to do a skate park and had people bid for the project and they got a sidewalk contractor at, with the lowest bid. Didn't know anything about skateboarding. And so I go there and, and they're all clamoring, watching me on the fence, like all these, all these city councilmen. And then they said, what do you think? What do you think? And I was like, it's terrible. And they said, oh, well, that's what all the kids were saying. We built it. But we said, wait till Tony Hawk gets here and he'll show you how to ride it. And... To me, like, it was, it was funny, but it was also tragic. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this thing. And at that moment, I decided I want to change this tide. I want to do something to at least be a go-between between the city and the kids that are, that are getting this facility and to, more importantly, direct those funds to more low-income areas. So that's, I didn't know what the mission was exactly, but I just said, I got to, you know, I have a voice. I can maybe affect this change and I got invited right then at that time to do Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Celebrity Edition. And my phone a friend was my brother, who was a literature major. And a literature, literature question came up, and the, it was for $125,000. I already used all my other ones on whatever, <laughs> stupid questions. And so it was, a, it was a Hemingway quote. And this is like, this is 2001. So Google is just on the scene, kind of. And so I'm like, oh, he'll know it. So we call up and he answers the phone. Yeah, okay, this is the quote. And I can hear him typing. And I was like, <laughs> unreal. Like, I thought you were a literature major, Steve. Um, and then he said, oh, it's uh, Huckleberry Finn. Yep, it's Huckleberry Finn. That's the answer for sure. Because he saw it come up a bunch of times on the search. And we got $125,000. I didn't bother trying to answer the next question. And that was the seed money for the foundation. So then we started giving out grants, mostly giving out resources on sort of how to, the best ways to get a skate park done, you know, the, the, 
how to position the city, how to raise funds, how to get a design. And then uh, we really started to be effective with our work. And now to date, we've helped to fund over 600 skate parks. It's really, it's really just selfish so that I have more places to skate. You want to have more places to skate. Yeah, it's like people blame my birthdays on Sunday. And they're like, this is just my big birthday party. <laughs> how can brand, because there's a lot of purpose-driven brands here, big ones and small ones, and people, how can they, can they get involved with what you're doing? Or how can they get involved? Oh, uh, tonyhawkfoundation.org. I mean, we'd love any support. Uh, you yeah. can be an advocate. Uh, you can be a donor. Um, you, can, you can be the one, the catalyst to start one in your city. You know, that's, that's the key to it all is, is the, we don't, we don't come into a city and say, you need a skate park. We empower the groups that are already trying to get the skate park going. That's, that's the model. Um, so that they have ownership of it and pride over it. Uh, switching gears a bit, you're a partner in agency decal. Did I say it? Yeah. Right. Can you tell me about that? Uh, what it's all about, what you're try trying to sure. do? Sure. Uh, well, Adam, who introduced me, the one who started it. So basically, um, my wife's from Detroit. We have roots in Detroit. We bought a house there. Uh, we love the city. We love the growth there. We've done a lot of skating. And I met Adam through some mutual skate friends. Uh, he actually, Adam got us, to, uh, got us permission to skate a backyard pool in Detroit. Big points in my book. And he sent me an email that it was, it was really clever. He sent me an email that was disguised as a press release saying that Tony Hawk is starting a marketing agency in Detroit with Adam Wilson and they're gonna go with purpose-driven brands and use their collective uh, experience. And I was like, that's a good idea. <laughs> and then we went down the line and got funding and all that. And, and it took a little bit longer than we expected, but, um, but it, was all, it was Adam's idea and, and I, I, it's been a blast. I mean, we, you know, it's been really fun to be on that side of it because I've been on the other side of market agencies that are all by the book and they're telling me how I should present skateboarding or what, what I do. And it's really frustrating. And, and I had to fight for that control all through my years of sponsorship. What does make a good partnership for you? Because like, often, even your early days, when you get sponsored, that was the big thing. Now the tables, in my opinion, would turn where you can say, choose who you work with. What makes a good brand? Uh, I, anything that I feel that I, I could... I could passionately promote or that I truly do participate in or that I think is a good idea. It's never really too far off of, of what I'm into. Uh, so it's, it's just more like the best part about having come this far is that, is that brands do trust me to do promotions in my own voice, especially on social media, because a lot of times they want to control the messaging and they know that I'm going to have that message in my actual voice and that's what's important and so and that's why i don't let anyone anyone else do my social media like people think that i have some team like i'm fat jewish or something it's a great instagram account but we are going to take questions we'll bring the mic over so now is your chance if you want to ask tony a question come on up and stand here beside me hi i'm sarah um, my question is what brands are doing action or adventure sports well and any tips for brands that want to get into that area I think the, well, the big players obviously are like Red Bull, Vans, um, Patagonia, Nike. Uh, you know, the way that Nike has marketed skateboarding and really presented it for, for what it is instead of trying to package it for what they think it is, uh, I, I have to give them uh, credit because they've come a long way and they're, you know, skateboarding's in the Olympics next year. Crazy. Um, and uh, they're supportive of that. But, and so are the other brands as well. 
Thanks, Tony. My name is Aaron. I wanted you to comment on how you stayed out of trouble. Lots of guys sort of f- fell by the wayside. How did? You, what do you attribute the difference being for those who didn't? Uh, there was no YouTube in my generation. <laughs> there was no TMZ when I was growing up. I think it was just more that I was always very focused on the skating because that's what got me there and I knew that was the priority. And I saw a lot of my peers, once they got a taste of fame or celebrity, or money, they really went off the wires. Um, they went off the rails and, and chased other distractions. And you could see it in their skating that they were losing focus. And, and I never wanted to do that. And so the sort of nerd in me shined through because of that. In the later years, it's just more because I want to be I want to be an example to my own children. And that transcends sometimes what I do for the most part. Yeah, I never set out to be a role model or anything. It was just more, it sort of fell into my lap. And uh, because I had kids, I was able to show them, uh, hopefully the right way to do things. Hey, t- Tony, I thought you could tell everybody about the time you wrote a cardboard skateboard on behalf of a cardboard box company. So, <laughs> yeah, you guys, uh, you guys made a skateboard out of cardboard um, and, and made a, a donation to uh, our Tony Hawk Foundation. And um, I'm not going to lie, it was really heavy and uh, very solid and skatable, but uh, probably not the direction we're going with with construction. But I appreciated the experiment. Yes. All right, last question. Hi, Tony, it's Mary Charlson. I just wanted to uh, ask you a little bit more about what you think about skateboarding in the Olympics and what that's going to mean for the industry. Uh, Will it sort of keep it it still in its grassroots or some of the challenges? I think the challenge is is mostly just fitting into all the rules of the Olympics. And and I'm I'm more talking about the path to getting into the Olympics and, and the, all the organizations involved and also the international aspect. I feel like skateboarding should have been in the Olympics before snowboarding. It's been around just as long. And so in my eyes, the summer games need the cool factor that snowboarding brings to their winter games. They need that more than we need their validation. That's always been my attitude and it might be cavalier, but, but I do feel like that because it's about time so many people skate and don't play many of your summer games, so uh, summer disciplines. So I think it's a great opportunity. The silver lining of all that is that it's going to be a great opportunity for skateboarding to be seen by a much bigger global audience and for kids that skate in the most unlikely areas to maybe have support from their government to do what they do and to have facilities and things like that. So I love that aspect of it. All of the, the politics and, and sort of the stuff going on behind the scenes, I remove myself from that because um, I, I just want to be a fan. And I don't, wanna, I don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to cash in from the inclusion of skateboarding because that's just not my directive at all. But it's going to be exciting. I mean, it's happening. It's unreal, yeah. That train is moving. It's crazy. Hey, what's up? I'm Roly. I wanted to ask you about the soundtracks for the uh, Tony Hawk games because I honestly feel like they're some of the most influential soundtracks in the history of video games. I feel like it really popularized music licensing in video games, in my opinion. Oh, thank Um, you. So what do you think of the influence of those songs? Because they're like iconic songs now. The influence for me was that that was my soundtrack to the skate parks. And so I wanted to share truly the culture of skating and share the music that I was listening to when I was growing up in those parks, you know, stuff. And it was all very punk driven. 
And the, the great part about that and about licensing it for those games was that those bands were excited to get any kind of coverage. So it wasn't like we had to pay them. And I'm not trying to say like, yeah, we got them. Um, but it, we didn't really have to pay them much in licensing. And that wasn't really the, you know, the music industry was still driven by sales back then. So once they got in the game and they, and they got that recognition, a lot of them had a second career. And I was proud of that. And then that opened up even more opportunity for getting more bands. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm hugely proud of, of sort of bringing the soundtrack to skating to a bigger audience. And, and um, it's funny because we're actually working on right now, well, I'm trying to work on, uh, so Tony X Pro Skater turns 20 this year and I'm trying to get a THPS themed concert happening that will be a benefit for my foundation. It'd be super cool. And I haven't gotten a lot of traction from the band, surprisingly. So uh, I'm hoping that changes. <laughs> Tony, a uh, real pleasure, man. It's, it's cool Thank to you. be sitting here. It was a dream of ours six years ago to honor the best brands in the world. And it's cool that it's now a person as well. And uh, you deserve it. Thanks for being here. Give him a hand. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Let me now just share a few of my notes from that. It was tough to not just fanboy out and kind of soak in Tony's awesomeness as I recall my own attempts at being a skater as a kid, but I wrote down a few things that are maybe worth sharing. First, I wrote down going against the grain. You know, Tony didn't get into skating because it was popular or he didn't just jump on some bandwagon. It was actually kind of a struggling sport, but that didn't deter him. You know, he went pro back in 1982, and he has ridden sort of the skateboarding culture and business through many ups and downs. So rather than chase opportunity, he created it, and we can do the same. The second thing I wrote down is perseverance. You know, there were some dark days, but Tony never gave up, and he was just as willing to give it his all at some tournament with a $100 prize as he is for some tournament that would pay him a million dollars. He demonstrated grit, professionalism, and patience. And it's really his perseverance, as much as his talent, that really makes him a living legend. The third thing I wrote down is timing. You know, timing is so, so important to success. Timing is often the result of luck, just being in the right place at the right time. You know, Tony's fame was really catapulted by the rise of ESPN, as well as the growing demand for home video games. 
You know, his exposure to skating began with this subculture in the late 70s where he was growing up in San Diego before it went on to become this wildly popular global activity. It's actually kind of shocking to me that it's taken until now, 2021, for skating to be recognized as a sport that will be featured in the Olympics. I believe Tony's gonna play a role in that, hopefully commentating on some of those events. And finally, I wrote down enthusiasm. You know, Tony's love of skating and of skaters and of the skate culture really shines through everything that he does and says. It's contagious for us to be around people who have devoted their lives to doing the things that they truly love. I hope that you are as inspired by Tony as I was and that you're able to commit the best parts of yourself to the pursuit of your own passions. Until next time. Once again, this is your host, Chris Neeland, and you've been listening to Cult Brand Secrets, where we explore the great speakers and insights shared at the gathering of Forbes' top-rated business summit. Learn more about the gathering at cultgathering.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps. Cult Brand Secrets is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Special thanks to Connor Standish and Laura Winter for their assistance in making this podcast possible. Also, I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, as well as executive producers, David Moss and Bridget Coyne. I'm your host, Chris Nealon. Thanks for listening. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.